This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. It's time for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Here is our lineup today. We got a Hall of Famer, Raleigh Fingers. We got Assistant General Manager, Dan Feinstein of the Oakland Athletics. We got an all-star and one of my favorite players of all time, Bip Roberts. You see him on A's pre- and post-game live on NBC Sports California. And then Paul Himbikides. We know him as Himbo. He's one of the top researchers for ESPN. He does the show Get Up, the morning show on ESPN. We also get to hear him all the time on Buster Olney's podcast. But he's now become a friend of the program, and he likes coming on. And whenever he can come on, he's got so many nuggets, it's unbelievable. But we're going to start with a guy who is a baseball Hall of Famer, a three-time World Series champion, a seven-time All-Star, an American League MVP, an American League Cy Young Award winner, a World Series MVP, four-time Rolaids Relief Man of the Year, three-time MLB save leader. Not only is he in the Baseball Hall of Fame, he's in the A's Hall of Fame, he's in the Brewers Hall of Fame. His number 34 is retired by the A's and the Brewers. The one and only Raleigh Fingers. Now joining us here on A's cast, he's one of the great pitchers in the history of the game. He won three World Series with the Oakland Athletics, seven-time All-Star, an American League Cy Young Award winner, an MVP in the American League in 1981, and, of course, is a Baseball Hall of Famer. The great Raleigh Fingers joins us here on A's Cast Live. Raleigh, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, my pleasure. Well, we got a big one tonight, Game 7. It doesn't get any bigger than that. How excited are you for this game? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a great, I think it's going to be a great game. Uh, both pitchers, uh, you know, are Cy Young Award winners. Uh, everybody's going to be a little bit nervous. I've been there and done that before. So seventh games of World Series is are, are a little, a little tight. So uh, nobody wants to make a mistake. And uh, I think uh, both teams are up for it. Yeah, you've closed out a game seven. What is that feeling like when you get that last out and you know uh, and your team rushes the field and you know you guys are the World Series champion? Oh, it's, uh, it's just like uh, someone taking an anvil off your shoulders. Uh, you know, if you're, when you're out there. In fact, I had, I had Pete Rose at the plate in, in Cincinnati. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, you, if you're out there and you think about what it means, if you think about the fans, if you think about the ring, you think about the disappointment, 
you're not going to do well. You just got to kind of lock all that stuff out of your head and uh, just uh, just pretend it's just you and the hitter and your catcher on the field right then and there. That's the only way to look at it. But you don't want to think about what it really means at the time. You just got to focus on what pitch you're going to throw and where you're going to throw it. And, uh, you know, if they can do that. I mean, I'm a, I was a closer. Uh, you know, the starting pitching is a little bit different uh, because, you know, you're going to have to go through the lineup two or three times. So you got to kind of remember the sequence of pitches, what you threw to get the certain hitter out the time before so you don't make a mistake. So starting pitching is a little bit different than coming in as a closer. You know, I read this about when you were in Kansas City, and, and I was so shocked by this. As you mentioned, you were a closer. There was a spring training game. I, I don't remember what year it was. You were, you were at Kansas City where you threw a complete game in spring training. And I'm like, if any manager did that today, he'd be fired if he had a guy throw a complete <laughs> game in spring training. Uh, that was the year I made the ball club. We were getting down towards the end of spring training, and it was kind of a, a toss-up between me and uh, I think a couple other pitchers to make the ball club in 1969. And we were over in Palm Springs playing in the Angels. And uh, uh, it was my turn to, to start. And um, I started and I threw uh, eight shutout innings against the Angels that day. And uh, that was the day I made the ball club. And, um, you, know, back, back, you know, back then it was, it was commonplace for usually your starting pitchers to go nine innings to get ready for the season. Nowadays, uh, you know, that's unheard of. I, I, it, the fact is, spring training, you're throwing eight innings. In today's baseball, we're happy if a starting pitcher in a real game only goes five. <laughs> well, if, if you were only going five back then when I was playing, you didn't make the ball club. So it's completely changed. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think you understand exactly how the Washington Nationals feel, is the Washington Nationals were obviously not the favorite in the World Series. You guys knew how good you were. And you weren't the favorite every single time. What was that like for you guys? Did that put a chip on your shoulder? Um, maybe a little chip, but I think it took a little bit pressure off of us also because uh, we weren't expected to win. And we went into Cincinnati in 72 against, you know, the big red machine, Johnny Bench, uh, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, Pete Rose. Uh, you know, they had a solid lineup and they were scoring a lot of runs against everybody. But, uh, you know, we were supposed to lose and, uh, I think our pitching, uh, I don't think they expected to see the pitching that, that we had uh, with Catfish Hunter and uh, uh, Kenny Holtzman, Vita Blue, John Odom. Uh, you know, we had, a, we had a really good pitching staff, and that's what we won on was with pitching. And in a short series, uh, anything can happen. And we, uh, you know, we held the uh, Reds down to, you know, not very many hits uh, in the top of their order, and that's why we won. And I, I, I don't remember if it's 74 or 75, where Ray Fossey has told me, we have Fossey on all the time, and Ray told me, you guys only use five pitchers in the World Series. That's just, that's unheard of. <laughs> yeah, that was in uh, 1974. Yeah, we used uh, Catfish, uh, Ken Holtzman, uh, Vida, John Odom, and myself. Nobody else got in the games. We only used five pitchers in that whole series. Yeah, that's and, uh, yeah, that, that's not that's unheard of today too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna see more than five guys for each team in one game. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, you know that's the way the game has gone nowadays. I don't know uh, who came up with the 
the pitch count. Uh, you know, 100 pitches. I don't think they just picked that number out of a hat or something. But I think guys today, uh, they could probably go longer. I think they could throw 130, 135 pitches, no problem at all, especially if they're throwing good. But, uh, you know, they're worried about guys hurting themselves. But uh, if you throw that many pitches over and over and over again, you're going to get used to it. I mean, I played with, with the A's for nine years, and I don't ever remember one pitcher being on a disabled list with an arm problem in nine years. And uh, these guys, you know, were going out throwing 150, 40, 50 pitches a game. Uh, they were throwing 300 innings a year. Uh, you know, there were 20-game winners and uh, no arm problems because uh, you got used to it. And if you get used to it, you can do it. You know, you guys won three straight World Series. The only other franchise to do that is the New York Yankees. It's just the A's and the Yankees. What does it mean to you now that everybody is really starting to truly appreciate the greatness of your World Series runs? Uh, you know, back there, you really didn't think about it. You know, we, I think the hardest thing was to win the first one. Uh, you know, we beat the, beat the uh, Reds in 72. And then in 70, 73, we were up against the Mets, and they had us uh, three games, the two down. And we came back in Oakland and won the final two games. Uh, but, you know, you really don't think about how good you are until after everything is over. And, you, and then winning again in 74 and beating the uh, Dodgers in five, uh, you know, that was very, you know, very satisfying. I mean, that was great to be able to win three in a row because no one had done it in a long time. And we had a chance in 75 also, but we, uh, we missed Catfish Hunter that year. Uh, he went to the Yankees. We lost him after the 74 season. I think if we'd have had Catfish that year, we might have been able to win a couple more. You know, I think about you and Goose Gossage. We recently, uh, also a Hall of Famer, and watching you guys growing up, and I asked Goose about this to where now you got these relievers that they can only pitch one inning and then they can't go on back-to-back days or three straight days. I mean, you guys came in and you'd throw three innings, you'd throw four innings. How proud are you and the guys of your era? That's when relievers were really at their best. Uh, you know, I think um, that's, that all started kind of in the late 90s. Uh, I think organizations realized that they need someone down in the bullpen to uh, stop things happening from the seventh, because most of your games are won or lost in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. So you need someone to be able to go out on that mound and get those out. The hardest out to get for a, for a relief pitcher is the last one. And you've got to find that one guy in your system that can get that last out. And if you do, you've got something. But, uh, you know, back then we were throwing three, four innings. I mean, I went seven innings one day at a game. You know, you just don't hear about that. Now. I mean, there's been sports writers asking, you know, hey, if you and Mariano Rivera were the lock horns, how would you think you would do? I said, I'd do great. All I got to do is pitch two innings. And, you know, he's only going to go, he's only able to go one. So I got him. So, uh, you know, that's just the way it was back then. I mean, Goose Gossage, uh, Sparky Lyle, Kent DeCalvey, um, uh, Dan Quisenberry, uh, Tim uh, Tug McGraw. I mean, uh, there were a, a lot of great closers back then. And all these guys, you know, we all did the same thing. We all went out there in the seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth inning. And the big thing back then was coming in with guys on base. Because nowadays you don't do that. You get to go out there and start the inning fresh. So the hardest part was coming in with the bases loaded, nobody out, and okay, you know, get out of this jam. And uh, we did that a lot uh, because starting pitchers wanted to stay in the games. That's what they got. They got paid for complete games, and so they wanted to stay in the games. I mean, 
there were times you'd almost have to fight Catfish Hunter to get him off the mountain in the uh, seventh or eighth inning if he was winning. So, uh, but that's that's where the game has really changed. Yeah, you're taking you're taking money out of his pocket. <laughs> that was right. <laughs> Let's end on this because I recently was in Green Bay and got to see what 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 great fans they have there in Wisconsin and, and one of your finest years in 1981 where you led baseball in saves. You were the MVP. You won the Cy Young Award. Uh, you had a great team. What was it like being on that team, and what was it like playing in Milwaukee? Oh, uh, Milwaukee's great. It was a great. It's a great baseball town. Uh, you know, in 1981, when uh, we, they got to trade with me and uh, Ted Simmons and Pete Bukovic, uh, that's really the basic three guys that they needed on their team. They needed a closer and another starter and a good hitting catcher, and they got them all in one trade. And in 1981, the fans just loved the Milwaukee Brewers. 1982, they loved the Milwaukee Brewers. It was great playing there. I mean, the lineup that we had, there were no holes in the lineup. You know, we had Paul Molitor and Robin Yount, Cecil Cooper, Ben Ogilvy, Gorman Thomas, Ted Simmons. I mean, there were no holes in that lineup. I would have hated to have to face our lineup. It was, uh, it was a great team. And, uh, you know, we had fun there. And it's always fun when you win. But Milwaukee was, uh, was great. I love playing in Milwaukee. They're great fans. Raleigh, we always appreciate the time. You're one of the greats of all time and obviously a Hall of Famer, an A's Hall of Famer. Be well. We'll talk to you soon and enjoy Game 7. I'll be watching. Thank you. It's always great when you get to catch up with A's greatness. That man is one of the great pitchers to have ever lived. No question about it. Dan Feinstein does a great job as assistant general manager for the athletics. He's also in control of the athletics international operations. In our conversation, we're going to talk about the A's. We'll talk about 2020. We'll talk about pitching, needs for this ball club. Also, the difference between working small market, big market. He's done A's. He's done Rays. He's also worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And then something that I'm really interested in, just how international affairs work for the A's. Because doing business in, let's say, Japan is different from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Mexico, scouts around the world. He's a fascinating guy. Here is Dan Feinstein of your Oakland Athletics. Dan Feinstein from the Oakland Athletics. We're going we're gonna to bring him on early. That's what we're going to do. He was going to come on at 3 o'clock, but we're going to bring him on early because we know how uh, – how front offices are very busy still at this time of the year. We always think of the busy time of the year during the baseball season, but now now is the time you get ready for building the ball club in 2020. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there's a there's a common misconception about the offseason, but in reality we're oftentimes busier during the winter than we are uh, at points during the summer. Yeah, it's like that. there's certain parts of the organization and – mainly like you guys in baseball ops and the sales team. This is when you need to sell A's baseball leading up to the 2020 t- season. So it's not like baseball teams, uh, they go dark. But, of course, tonight we got Game 7 of the World Series. How crazy has it been that the road team has won every single game? Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen anything like that in a while. And it's <laughs> uh, it's crazy to think that uh, every road game would be – or every game would be run by the won by the road team. But, you know, Washington has to feel pretty good 
going into the night with uh, Scherzer on the hill. Yeah, I just, you know, for so many years, what have we talked about? Home field advantage. Everybody wants high. And it, it doesn't matter the sport, right? Hockey, NBA, uh, football. You want to have, for the playoffs, you want to have home field advantage. And the home team is actually under 500 in these winner-take-all games. It's like, how do you explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's just the craziness and the randomness of the postseason. We always talk about, um, you know, just getting in and then anything can happen. And, and this year is, is truly an example of that. And these wild card teams, unfortunately, for the A's and the Rays, it doesn't go your way, or the Brewers. But every once in a while, we get this wild card team that's been, you know, playing playoff baseball for the last month. Heck, you could be saying they've been do or die situations since their bad start in May. And you look how good the Washington Nationals are. The, these wild card teams that have played so hard down the stretch, they're tough to knock out. They are. And, you know, as disappointing as our finish was this year, and, you know, we don't want to diminish from the success that our club had and, and the strides we made and uh, the entertainment that they provide our fans all season long. Um, really, I mean, it's, it's about getting into the postseason, and, and then once you're in, uh, all bets are off and anything can happen. Yeah, you know, you win 97 games in back-to-back years. Sometimes in sports, you got to lose some tough ones, to learn how to win. I think the Nationals are a great great example of that. They've had this run of very tough losses, and their core guys have been through it, and they've now overcome it. You know, I could see with this team growing, remember the A's are still pretty young for the most part, you know, learning from these last two losses, but it just it stings. There's no question. Yeah, um, it does. Uh, but, you know, hopefully it was a valuable learning opportunity for our group. We're going to have uh, the bulk of our team back next year, uh, both on the position player side and, and the pitching. And uh, we're looking forward to continuing the success and, and building off that and having um, as good, if not better, a season next year. Did you ever think in your career you'd watch a team win 97 games in back-to-back years and that only gets you into the wild card game? <laughs> uh, it would have been hard to fathom a while ago. But, um, you know, we we like the wild card. Uh, it gives an, just another avenue to the postseason and – um, you know, we've been in it a couple times now. It hasn't gone our way, but, um, you know, we're, we like it. And thinking about next season, I think something we'll talk about a lot in spring training is, you know, the Astros are not going away. You're probably going to have to win 100 games or more to win the division. So getting off to not a slow start will be very important for the A's. And the reason why I think you can get away from that is the fact what you just talked about, your core is coming back. Because that's kind of been the, the the theme is, why do the A's get out to a slow start? We don't know why. Maybe it's because there's a lot of different new players coming in. I don't think you're going to have that problem next year. No, I mean, the season really is. They talk about a marathon and, and not a sprint. And um, as much as we'd like to get off to a, a, a hot start next year, it's a, it's a long season. We, we think we have the personnel built for a long year. Um, like I said, we're, it's going to be virtually the same team uh, going into next year as this year, and um, they're just a little bit uh, one year older and wiser. And I think about your pitching staff, and I've kind of been joking, <clears throat> just not at the big league level. Fran Reardon's going to have a really good staff <laughs> down there in Las Vegas too. So this year with all the injuries, you didn't have depth till late in the season, but talk about the depth you're going to have going into spring training. Yeah, it's definitely a strength of ours going into next year, and it's as deep a pitching staff um, as we've had in a while, um, you know, we, uh, with Montas, Manaya, Fires, uh, Mengden, Bassett, uh, Puck, and Lazardo, 
Uh, a couple more on the way that uh, we'll get a glimpse of in spring training in, in Dalton Jeffries and Grant Holmes. I mean, this is as, as deep a starting staff as we've had in a while. No doubt about it. And, and two of the guys you mentioned, I think we're all very excited to, to have power left-handed arms. You think about Puck, you think about Lazardo to have them healthy for a full season. I, I know I know Emo and Bob just got to be thrilled knowing they're going to have that in their back pocket, and it's not coming out of the bullpen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were we eased them into the big leagues, both of them, this year. They were coming off um, some injuries, and, and we were able to provide them with a more structured uh, pitching plan. But we're going to set both of them loose next year. Uh, they should both be in the rotation, and, um, you know, health permitting, uh, we're expecting big things out of both those guys. So it's interesting your career where you've worked for two teams that have been very, very successful. They just played each other in the wild card, but they don't have all the resources right now. Uh, I talk about how the A's and the Rays really mirror each other in so many different ways. When you talk about business, you talk about stadium, that very similar. Uh, both, you know, the pursuit of new ballparks has been a struggle for both of them. And then you worked for the Dodgers, where you got Dodger Stadium, you got the big, you got the big cable deal with Time Warner. You've got resources galore. What, what's it like to work for the Dodgers, and then what's it like to work for the A's and the Rays? Well, the ironic thing is that of the three teams I've worked for, two of them are very similar in the A's and the Rays, and the the Dodgers are in a little bit different category. Our, our most successful seasons were with Tampa and Oakland. Uh, we struggled the year and a half we were in, in L.A., but it was an eye-opening experience, uh, something I'd never experienced before. But um, Tampa and, and Oakland, there's similarities across the board in the way that the business structure and uh, the baseball operations team have to work uh, you know, even that much harder uh, than, the, than the big market clubs sometimes to, to field a competitive team. And I, and I think about, you know, you get a lot of smart baseball people, but you're not going to have an analytics department like the Yankees who have 20. You're going to have much smaller. The same thing with the Rays. How key is it to hit on these people that help you build your teams that get you into the postseason? Yeah, I mean, we have one of the smaller front offices uh, in baseball, but it's been designed that way, and uh, it works well for us. Um, the people that we have here in Pike Goldschmidt, Ben Lowry, David Jackson, Hayden, Dan Kantrovitz are, are extremely uh, talented, um, have, uh, you know, work across multiple levels of our baseball operation, and uh, we're on the a forefront uh, as much as anybody. And there's no doubt about it, and you think about the success, and I think what, what's so different with a lot of these clubs today, and I hate to see it when you start looking at teams that – they're going to lose 100 games, and they're not going to be competitive. And it's one of the reasons why the Astros win 107 and the Yankees are winning 103 and Minnesota's winning 101. You know, you, you, you really beat up on teams that are not trying. And I know Billy Bean has always stressed this about, you know, there's one thing to build a minor league system, but you still have to build to try and win at the big league level. Yeah, and it's, it's not in our DNA to ever um, – go into a season and not try to win as many games as possible. Every, every year that we've been here, we've uh, tried to put the most competitive team we can on the field. Uh, we've had a lot of success doing that, but it is important to build, um, you know, a strong FAR system to um, have a pipeline of talent coming in. Yeah, everybody talks about the Houston Astros and all those first-round picks, and but really they're, they've, once they tried to start winning – they start, they started making trades and they started bringing veterans in and that's one of the fun things that I've liked about this World Series is these two clubs are two of the oldest teams in baseball. 
Yeah, um, and both of them have done a remarkable job of, of drafting and signing international players, uh, but they've also had the luxury of adding some premium talent along the way in midseason trades and, and off-season acquisitions to make them that much stronger. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about your title. you got a great title because not only are you the assistant general manager, but major league and international operations. I love that, in charge of international operations. What is that like because dealing with – international is far different than when you're dealing in the states right it is um and it's really unlike anything else in the game um we have a a global presence where we have scouts and and actively scout six of the seven continents um with a primary focus in latin america and asia um we have made a renewed emphasis on signing international talent over the last three years and uh right now you know a good bulk of our of our minor leagues are filled with players from elsewhere and then, like, I was talking about this earlier in the show today. Doing business trying to get a Japanese baseball player is far different than trying to get a kid from Latin America, let's say Dominican Republic. And then we know the issues of trying to get somebody from Cuba. I mean, doing business around the world, it's different places, different rules. It is, and, and there there are different rules. And, and sometimes it's uh, from, from country to country, even in Latin America. You highlighted Cuba. Um, we have nine Cuban players we've signed over the last few years, and um, getting them residency and visas is a little bit tricky. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a challenge all over the world, um, but something that you know we've had success in and continue to prioritize. So when you're talking to people around the world. You know, they're up at different times of the day, right? We know that going to Japan. Uh, I've been to London with the Raiders. So it's like, how, how do you organize your day and your time to talk to people internationally who are in crazy different time zones? Uh, at this point, I've kind of figured out what time uh, people wake up and what time they go to sleep. Uh, you'd be surprised at the sleeping patterns of scouts around the world. But we've had plenty of uh, conference calls with, with our Asian group that have started here at midnight. <laughs> So how do you do you get to travel around the world since since you're controlling this? Yeah. Um yeah, I made a trip to Asia this this summer. I make several trips to Latin America. I just got back from Colombia. Uh we have a very hard working staff uh led by Steve Sharp uh and Juan Mascara out of out of Panama um who travel a, a good deal more than me and and we really rely on them uh for their input and and recommendations on signing players. So since you've seen this group of just young wave of great young players it, it is a ma- it's amazing the amount of talent that's in the game right now that's under 30 that's under 25 and we're seeing so many of these young american kids from playing travel ball and playing in these tournaments they just seem more mature are you seeing the same thing internationally where players are just better than they were let's just say 20 years ago I don't know if they're better than they were 20 years ago. I think people are recognizing the importance of scouting and signing players from Latin America and Asian uh, maybe more than they did at that time. You know, there's still an element of luck uh, to all of this. You're you're scouting players when they're 14 and 15. You're signing them when they're 16 internationally. Um, you look at Juan Soto with, with Washington. They, you know, they did a tremendous job uh, with him. Um, you know, signed him for for you know comparatively speaking, low dollars and wasn't uh, a standout guy in that class, but uh, he's turned out to be everything they thought he was going to be and more. So when you look going into this offseason, what are the major goals for the front office? 
Uh, it's going to be a little bit different um, than last year. I mean, we've talked about the bulk of the club uh, being in place for, for 2020 and, and the depth of our starting pitching and our position player core. We're, we're going to try to make incremental upgrades to the club throughout the winter um, through a variety of means. So last year, I mean, it was all about Machado and Harper, right? And we blew through the winter meetings, not big stories, and it really went all the way up to spring training. Do you think we'll get back to a time where a lot more deals are happening around the winter meetings and we're, we're doing this in December versus, like, February of next year? It's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, we've seen that free agent period uh, go later and later into the spring. I, I don't know if that's going to change or not. Um, it's a lot of the under-the-radar free agents, though, that, that make um, sometimes make the biggest impact. I mean, you look at Robbie Grossman on our team, um, wasn't on really anybody's radar and, and was a you know, solid contributor to our club and somebody who we anticipate being here um, in 2020. Um, so it's, it's not always the big-ticket free agents that, that help you the most. And one more about international. Sure. Would you like to see a draft where not only are the kids in the United States in the draft, but kids from internationally are also in the draft? I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, we would welcome anything that evens the playing field on the international market. There are, you know, a myriad of challenges that go along with that, and Major League Baseball is working through that as we speak, um, trying to get, uh, you know, players from basically every other country in the world uh, into one draft is is not going to be easy, but yeah, we would welcome a draft. Yeah, hopefully that's going to be in the future. And I, you know, I just think in my years being in baseball, I, I started being around it professionally, ninety six, ninety seven. You know, the Moneyball era showed up, and we were talking about sabermetrics. And I just think now the technology that we have with Statcast. I know Hawkeyes coming in, which they have in tennis. We got. Rap Soto, we got radar, we got these high tech cameras. It's just amazing how we can really, through science now, forget weighted runs created plus. I mean, we now can really monitor these athletes with all this technology. How have you seen it grown in your time in the game? Um, yeah, and we're, and we're as you know involved and active with uh, new technology as anybody. I mean, we still rely heavily on our scouts to tell us what they think, uh, relying on their experience of the players they've seen over the years. But it, it's not uncommon to go into, to an international showcase now and see, you know, fifteen to twenty high-speed cameras lined up and um, Rapsodo units all over the field, which is a little bit of a change. I know I've asked you this before, but it's one of my favorite things with you. Now, you graduated from UC Davis, and you got a degree <laughs> in medieval European history. Like, never even heard of that before. How did you get into medieval European history? Uh, I knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to work in baseball. Um, you know, and it, it, um, it, I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I figured uh, while I was at college, uh, instead of studying something that... Uh, you know, really didn't interest me. I, I wanted to spend my time doing something um, that I really enjoyed. And, you know, the Roman Empire and, and the Chinese dynasties uh, uh, were what intrigued me at the time. So I figured why not uh, spend my days learning about them? Yeah. And as as some people may not get educated on that, but those times on our planet, it's just it's we've made a lot of movies about it, but it really is fascinating what life was like way back when at, to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know that we have a a, a deep enough appreciation for 
um, the comforts of modern life because it was certainly a lot more difficult uh, even, you know, 100 years ago and, and certainly before that. I know you're busy, and we got the World Series. Thank you so much. Well, we always love having you on the program here. All of you guys have been great to us throughout the year, helping us build A's Cast and A's Cast Live, so thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that. kind of gives you insight of uh, uh, the front office with the athletics. Bip Roberts, Oakland's own, terrific player, turn broadcaster coach he's done it all in this game and so just breaking down a little world series with bip roberts as he's down in arizona here's my guy bip roberts great bip roberts is with us here on a's cast live bip how fired up are you tonight game seven in houston i am fired up can you hear me yeah we got you how are you i'm doing great man i just got into phoenix man i'm gonna check out a niner game tomorrow but uh I got the uh, World Series on the hot plate tonight, and I believe that the Washington Nationals are going to win, man. It's just been one of those series. The, the, the road team has won every game, and I don't see it stopping. I just think Washington is in the mood to win a championship, and we'll see tonight. Does that shock you about how dominant the road team has been in this World Series? It really does. You know, normally the home crowd can sway the way a team plays, you know, either build them up when they're struggling or help them get over the hump. And what I see right now is just a veteran Washington team that's not afraid to play on the road. These guys play with aggression. When they get down, they're not afraid. Baby Martinez has been one of those guys that keeps pushing them forward. And because of that, I think, you know, they have a veteran team. They've been there before. And so they're not afraid of Houston. And I think that other teams would be afraid of Houston because of the way they play. But Washington is taking them head on, and right now we're in game seven, so anything could happen tonight. Yeah, how about that, that the two teams in the World Series, in a sport that wants to go younger, it wants to go cheaper, but the two teams playing for it all in game seven are two of the oldest clubs in baseball. And I'm really happy about that because as we've watched the winners develop the last few years, the 30-year-old doesn't seem to be able to get a job. He's always in the extra ballpark practicing or waiting until half the year is over to get a job. I just believe that when you're 30 years old and you're in the big leagues, you're there for a reason. That's because you're very good. And, yes, you're going to get paid. You're one of those veteran guys who deserves to get paid. And the way the league is now, they want to pay the 20-year-olds instead of the 30-year-olds. So when you're 30 right now, if you don't put up numbers, it's tough to get a job. And it's good to see Washington doing what they're doing because they have a team full of 30-year-olds. And they're showing this 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 game of baseball that you can't count the 30 year out 30 year old out. You have to continue to let him play. And when he decides to move on, let him move on. But a veteran in the game of baseball, I mean, that's priceless right now. And the two pitchers going tonight, you got Max Scherzer, you got Zach Greinke. Both these guys could potentially uh, end up in the hall of fame. And then you got Garrett Cole lurking in the bullpen as a hitter. How would you – you go into this game, what's in your mind knowing that Cole's down there and he's probably going to get in the game? Well, uh, let's not overlook Grinky because of what he did last time. He stopped that uh, when it was too old. He was the guy that got him back on track. So, you know, I wasn't expecting Grinky to be as good as he was last time. So, I'm thinking that we know Cole, if he gets in, he's going to bring it. We know he's going to bring that fastball. Hopefully he doesn't have as much on it as he did in his last outing. But we know Grinky is fully ready, and when he's when he's good, he's changing speeds. He's keeping you off balance. He's using both sides of the plate, and so he's a little tougher 
I think sometimes when you're facing a guy who can move the ball around and change speeds more so than a guy who continues to throw hard and just throw everything hard. And I think that because he's a guy who throws extremely hard, he still needs that extra day off. He may not be 100%, but Greeky is ready to go, and I think that's the guy that they're going to ride on tonight, and, and I think he's going to do a great job. Now, I still believe that Washington's going to beat him, but I still believe that Greeky's going to keep these guys in the game. It's going to be nip and tuck the entire game. It'll come down to later innings, and it'll come down to mistakes. Yeah, one of the mistakes yesterday was the umpire with Trey Turner trying to say he was in the baseline. He may have been early, but by the time he hit the bag, he was dead in the middle of the bag. What did you think about that call? You know, it was a tough call. It really was because it seemed like they were there simultaneously. He got there right as the ball was hitting the glove. Why is the glove in front of the base? I didn't get that part of it. You know, I'm thinking if you're first baseman, you got to – get around him with that left foot and step out there, call inside or whatever it is. That's fundamental. He was just running down the line. I thought I didn't see, he, I didn't see where he did anything wrong. I see why Davey got thrown out. That was a very emotional call, but good thing it didn't hurt either team because as you see, there was a big home run hit right after it. So nobody's really talking about it, but let's just say that was the biggest, the turning point of the game. You're thinking that man, maybe Washington loses because of a play like that. Let's let the guys on the field decide what happened. You know, that was a tough call. It went the right way. It happened at a time where it could have been detrimental to one, but because of the way baseball is, you know, you have to make the next pitch, and then you never know what's going to happen. I'm so with you, Bip. I, I, I was so worried that a controversial call could could end up being the story of the World Series. And this has been such a good World Series. Uh, not every game has been great, but I just the way the the way the story has played out, it's been really, really good. And you just don't want to see it. You don't want to see it end because of a bad call from an umpire. No, no. And tonight, you know, game seven. I mean, this is the dream that every ball player has as they grow up and play ball in the backyard. And we just want to see a good, clean game. Whatever happens, happens. I don't want to see anybody make any mistakes. I just want the best team to win tonight. How about Max Scherzer? Scratch game five. He's just got a bad neck, bad back, takes cortisone shot, and now he says he's ready to go. I mean, that's just I, – I, I hope he is really – I don't think you can say he's at full strength, but uh, he's feeling a heck of a lot better. Well, if he takes that ball, that means he's feeling 100%. So he's not going out there trying to come up with a, a lame excuse of, well, you know, I wasn't feeling great and maybe I wasn't and I shouldn't have. No, he's taking the ball because he wants to help his team win. So whatever happens, you know, you just have to tip your cap to him because he found a way to get the ball. And normally when guys have situations like that, they're not going to pitch. But this guy is a bulldog. And so he knows the situation and how magnified it is and, and what he means to this team. And if he could just give him a lift emotionally, that's good enough. But if he could also go out there and pitch the way he's capable, it's going to be a, a short night. I mean, on both sides, because both of these pitchers, when they're hot, they're going to shut that offense down. And what's crazy about Max Scherzer is his first time through the lineup during these postseasons, that's when you get him because the second, the third, the fourth time through the lineup, he's absolutely dominated. It's hard to believe that someone as good as Scherzer could struggle early like this. Well, you know, when you look at the previous games, most of these guys have struggled early in the first inning. You have to get these guys early because I'm sure their nerves, are just out of whack because it is the World Series. It's something they've dreamed about all their lives, and now they get a chance to make it happen. And so I just think that last night you saw that in the first inning. Verlander 
Strasburg, they both struggled in the first. It's happened a lot in the series. So, yeah, you better get them early because when they get, get you know, relaxed and they start finding the, the, the pitches and start finding the feel of their pitches, they get tougher. And we always say, if you don't get them early, good pitches going to shut you down later. So you're, uh, you're down in the Valley of the Sun taking in a little football, huh? I am. It was my birthday month. Not my birthday day. It was my birthday month, and this is the end of it. Birthday was the 27th. This is the final call. I'm, I'm over here now at the, uh, what is it called, the culinary dropout with uh, one of my former players who played for me when I was coaching this guy line. He is now an attorney here in uh, Arizona, so I'm going to hang out with him, watch the, the World Series, and watch the football game, and head back to the Bay on Friday morning. Uh, are you going to go down, go out in Scottsdale tonight? Yeah, you know that. I got to get out and do something. Birthday time, man! Ah, <laughs> oh, Game Seven in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's gonna be it's gonna be packed tonight down there. Oh, I can't wait, man! My my little buddy was just telling me. He says uh, happy hour is one of the happiest times around here. So I'm looking forward to it. You are the best. Happy birthday! Enjoy <laughs> enjoy Game Seven. Enjoy the Niner game, and we'll talk to you when you get back. Howdy! Good talking to you, man. Have a great winter. Well, happy birthday month to Bip. Nice that he celebrates the entire month. Good for him. Paul Hemikides is a great researcher for ESPN, known in our business as second to none. And he is on the show, Get Up, the morning show that they have on ESPN. Also, as I said earlier in this podcast about how he's on with Buster Olney every single week, breaking down baseball. But he does all sports, but his true love is baseball. And he gives us some big-time nuggets here for the World Series. Here is Himbo. Himbo, how are you? (laughs) <laughs> What's up, buddy? How is, how's everything going over there today? Uh, we can't wait. You and I both like the Nats before this, and it's setting up uh, the road team wins every game. Going to be a lot of fun. And one of your great notes is about Max Scherzer being the highest paid player and winning the World Series, the only non-Yankee to do it, Tris Speaker back in 1920 with the Indians. Uh, Mad Max is making $42 million. What was Speaker making in 1920? Uh, <laughs> I got to pull that up. You know, I, I think it was a, just a tad bit less. I think it's fascinating, though. It's, just, it's, such a, it's such a fitting way for the season to come to an end. Max Scherzer, they gave him this monster contract. Obviously, he's more than lived up to it. But oh, to answer your question, $20,000 Tris Speaker made in 1920. So, so a nice, uh, maybe, maybe that's about what Max is pulling in for pitch these days. But it's just a perfect and fitting way for the season to come to an end, in my judgment. And the fact that no pitcher has ever done it, just struck me as a you know fun anecdote worth sharing. Uh, and it's crazy to think. I, I, I would have thought at some point in Garrett Cole's career, whether it was with the Pirates, Astros, minor league baseball, that at some point, at one time he came out of the bullpen, and then you got that note about the last time he came out of the bullpen. You got to go back to UCLA. More than 10 years, guys. The last time he came out of the pen, his freshman season, at UCLA, he pitched. This, we all remember this, of course. He pitched the tenth inning of a game on May nineteenth of '09 against the UC Irvine Anteaters. We all know it well. And in that game, whatever it's worth, he did take the loss and allowed the game-winning run. He's never pitched on fewer than four days rest in the big leagues. It just struck me as really interesting. We talked about it with uh, Steven Strasburg a few weeks ago when he pitched uh, out of the pen in the wild card game. To me, it's going to absolutely become a factor tonight because there is no question in my mind that Garrett Cole sees the mound. And I think about home field advantage. We've always talked, ah, home field advantage. But 
There is no home field advantage. There's no home field advantage in the series, all time in game sevens. The whole team is a game under 500. What is it about home field advantage doesn't mean what we think it means? Well, I think my, my like, look, I, you can't, I've never been in these shoes before, but my best guess in reading, in reading, in reading the faces on these guys, these teams, these guys feel the pressure. They most definitely feel the pressure. After Juan Soto hit that home run last night, you can't tell me that pressure didn't shift in that building. And the fans, especially in that building, when it's enclosed and it's all loud, when it's not loud, it's super noticeable. I've, I've seen games there before, just like you guys have. But what strikes me as fascinating, we talked before the series about how big an underdog the Nats were, and you and I didn't really understand that. I went back and looked this up. If the Nationals win tonight, it would be the third largest upset in the history of the World Series and the largest upset in the World Series for a team that didn't have home field advantage. Now, you would never know if you just if someone dropped you on earth for the first time a week ago. You would never think that, given how well these teams have played over the last week and a half. But can you believe that? The third largest upset in World Series history. Yeah, and there's been 114. This is the 115th. That 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 really says a lot. <laughs> sure does, man. It's just it's just so bizarre to me. Like a hundred years ago, the White Sox lost the World Series on purpose, and 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 they still were were a, a less significant favorite than the Astros are in this one. It's really bizarre. I look at Zach Greinke, and you can make a case that he's going to be a Hall of Famer, but his numbers in the postseason are not Hall of Fame worthy. How big is this start? They traded for him to be in a situation like this. What does this do for his leg- legacy, win or lose? This is this is the this this game. This start for him is what's on his Hall of Fame reel. Should he make it? And there's a really good chance that if he doesn't go out there tonight and throw the ball well, that he doesn't. Like it's sometimes it's that simple. Like for us, for some of these borderline candidates, and I would probably categorize him as such. We, we like to, to hold on to these these Heisman moments, right, for lack of a better term. And Zach Greinke just doesn't really have those. They went and traded for him midseason, obviously, like you said. He's been a major disappointment in the postseason. And unlike Justin Verlander, who's already a first ballot Hall of Famer without any of this stuff, Zach Greinke could really help himself tonight. But I love the opinion that there's much less pressure on him, at least in terms of eating innings and eating outs, than there is on Max Scherzer. Because Garrett Cole, with Garrett Cole looming in the bullpen, I don't think Zach Greinke is going to get you 21 outs tonight. I think if, if they get 15 outs of, of 15 quality outs out of Zach Greinke tonight, they'll be happy with this performance. I would be stunned if they give him a long leash. What do you guys think? Oh, yeah, I, same thing. I, I, you're going to have Cole up, uh, up and early if, if you don't see Greinke cruising. I think there's no question about that. And you just start thinking about the Nats and the confidence that they have. And you talked about them being such an underdog. It's like weird that people didn't pay attention. Since they were 19 and 31, they've had the best record in baseball. I mean, if they didn't get off to that bad start, Himbo, I mean, they would have easily won 100 games. We, we gave you that number a week and a half ago, and I'm surprised more people didn't take notice. They are um, one win away from, from essentially extinguishing two juggernauts this postseason. They would be the first team ever to beat two teams in the postseason that won 105 or more games during the regular season. Think about that. This team they have to, obviously has to overcome a deficit in the eighth inning of the wild card game. Same goes for game five of the, uh, Amer- uh, the, the division series against the Dodgers. And they have an opportunity in a winner-take-all game here tonight. It's like, the, it's like this team is Teflon. It's, it's wild. But when you, when you sort of <laughs> – they sort of remind me of the Royals um, from a few years back. It just seems like nothing, nothing – these guys don't waver under any circumstances. And at least for, for my money, they're playing on house money. And, they're, and, and that's sort of the way they're acting and the way that they're playing, most definitely on the road. Yeah, it, it's that wild card team has been playing playoff baseball since September – 
And since May, since yeah. the middle of May, they've been playing playoff baseball. I would interject like that. Like, like you said, that 50 game start was the best thing that could have happened to them because they had to play urgent baseball for five months, not one. How much did last night's start change how you feel about Steven Strasburg? Well, I think Steven Strasburg has been, I think, painted a little bit unfairly by some of us in the national media. The stuff has always been extraordinary. For the most part, the postseason uh, results and the record has, has always been pretty close to it. The fact that he doesn't say the things that we want, the fact that he doesn't act too demonstratively, the fact that we have this history of him and his agent sort of doctoring his innings and all the rest of it, I think uh, has left a sour taste in our mouth. But the numbers show that he takes a backseat to no one in, t- in terms of his uh, postseason performance. I, that, that was most definitely a legacy game for him, and I think he made himself a lot of money this postseason, a lot of money. And I'm curious to see, look, Scott Boris has his feet up, obviously, because his, his clients are going to get paid this offseason. But if, if, if I'm Scott Boris and I, and I see Garrett Cole coming out there throwing 102-mile-per-hour BBs on, on, on three days rest for the first time since he was in high school, uh, <laughs> I think I'd be gritting my teeth a little bit. But you have, there is no doubt in my mind. There is no doubt in my mind that he wants to do what Madison Bumgarner did, that he wants to do what Randy Johnson did and all the rest of it. But going back to Strasburg, I think you're right. This guy's absolutely nailed. Just because he doesn't look like we want him to, doesn't mean, I mean he doesn't pitch you know, the way we want him to. Yeah, I was talking about game before you came on. The game sevens are kind of like Super Bowls. If you do something really special, that's what people will remember you by. And you talked about Madison Bumgarner and Randy Johnson. I mean, when we talk about them and their greatness – we talk about them coming in, uh, you know, hey, Randy Johnson pitched game six and he's closing out game seven against the Yankees. That's the kind of historic stuff people will never forget about you. That's the stuff of legend. That, I mean, that's, that's still like Christy Matheson's legacy, right, that he shut out the three shutouts in the, in, in, in the same World Series. Like that's the kind of stuff that we hold on to, which, which means it wouldn't really surprise me if the starters tonight don't play as big a role in the narrative as the relievers. Cause you never know what's going to happen, obviously, but like, would you be stunned if Justin Verlander started warming up? Would you be stunned if Steven Strasburg started warming up? Maybe a little bit, but when you consider like the, the world series lore and sort of, sort of these things that we categorize in our mind, that's the stuff of legend that I think would go a much longer way than say a, a really good or deep outing by Scherzer or Granke. Like this is certainly a legacy game for both of the pitchers, any game seven is, but what we see these guys do out of the pen might be even more significant historically. Well, you score the first run in the World Series you know, in, in, in a game seven. You know, we, we, we've been seeing you're well over 500 when you score first. I, I know it's just one run, but, man, you score first, the odds immediately go into your favor. No, most definitely. And that, speaking specifically to Matt Scherzer, that is the time to get him. He's allowed six runs and three homers this postseason, and they've all come – his first run through the lineup. But when facing Scherzer the second, third, or the fourth time in a game, opponents are 7 for 52, accompanied by 19 strikeouts and only one extra base hit. It's super cliche, so I hate to even say it, but all the great ones, you got to get them early, right? That's what they always say. Well, in Scherzer's case, the numbers really back that up. And what I thought was interesting is that Scherzer this postseason has sort of modified his pitch mix the later he's gotten in the game, going more uh, reliant on his changeup. So he's adjusting to hitters better, better than they're adjusting to him. I don't really know what kind of stamina he's going to have, though. But if he, if, if, if he can successfully navigate the order for the first time, it could be a really long night for Astros hitters because he's done an outstanding job this postseason as a, at adjusting throughout the game. 
Yeah, what scares me is, you know, just a few days ago, he couldn't even lift his arm. His wife had to dress him. He couldn't put on his own shirt. I know he took the magic shot cortisone, and he was throwing, <laughs> and he was he was in the bullpen yesterday. I just it's, it's the only thing that scares me about this game tonight is, you know, at what point is this injury that prevented him in game five that could creep up in game seven? Yeah, what we don't need is for Scherzer to go out there with all the energy and the motion and the fire and just to be flat. Nothing was worse than two years ago, and this was not a health issue, but when you Darvish just laid an egg in the first inning against the Astros, and that game was over by 9 o'clock, right? Uh, I'm on the East Coast, of course. That, that's what we don't want. That's what we don't want. Uh, my expectation is that Scherzer is good to go, though. He said that cortisone, <laughs> that is, uh, pitchers swear, swear by that stuff. And presumably, if he was good enough to throw out of the bullpen yesterday, I have to, now he's pitching on seven days rest. His numbers on seven days rest are obviously outstanding. He's Max Scherzer. His stuff is, I expect his stuff to be really live. What I'm most curious about is how many, how many innings he can eat up himself because obviously you're much less confident in that Nationals bullpen. They have a couple guys that you trust, but if he doesn't give them much length, I think they're in real trouble tonight. All right, who wins tonight and who's going to be the star? I'm picking the Nationals to win the game tonight. Uh, Nathan Seven was my original pick. I believe that was yours as well, so I don't see any good reason to, 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 to stray away from that, especially considering they're, they're playing on the road, which for some reason uh, has been much easier for, for both teams this postseason. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I think we're, we're going to see uh, Anthony Rendon win the uh, MVP uh, of this series and have a really, really good game again tonight. That guy can hit with his eyes closed. I am overwhelmingly impressed with what he can do. He can handle all pitch types and, and all throughout the zone. And, look, if my money's on one guy tonight to make a considerable difference, it's going to be Anthony Rendon. I mean, I, 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 like, I could not be more impressed with his approach this postseason. He's Speaking of people that have made themselves a lot of money, but I think he's a, he's a really, really safe bet. And with his slow heartbeat, look, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy, but you can't help but in, in watching him can tell. He just slows the game down so well. I think he gets a couple knocks tonight, wins the MVP, and the Nats are hoisting that trophy. I mean, how many people have won the World Series and been named World Series MVP – and, and do it in the town you grew up in. Yeah, as a, as a visiting player, <laughs> all things, that's, um, that'll, that'll be, that'll be an, uh, another fun research project for me. But I think, I mean, look, you're reading all the stories about there's a good, you know, good chance the hands, you know, the hands of uh, leaving Washington and, you know, other teams out, outbid them for services this offseason and all the rest of it. Obviously, he's only focused on tonight. But I'm so, so happy that we've had the opportunity to, to, to to see his sort of coming out party to the national stage. We've all watched him play for a long time and know how good he is, but the national audience hasn't. He's, he's not one of these famous players. He's much less famous than Bryce Harper, right? Who, who was much, a much uh, lesser player. Uh, you could certainly argue. Uh, I'm a Phillies fan, so I, I know this all too well, but it's really cool to see Anthony Rendon thrive on the national stage and for him to do it under the circumstances like you described. It's, it's the coolest thing for him to see his family in Houston, wearing the Nats stuff, and, and, and that would be really, uh, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that you, you drop in, in, in the 30 for 30. Before we let you go, how did you feel about Joe Girardi being named Philly's manager? I was pleased with the Joe Girardi hire, considering the applicant pool. So, uh, Dusty would have been a disaster. Uh, I, I've made that eminently clear when people ask me my opinion there, and I think Buck would have been fine. Uh, among all the sort of retread managers, uh, Girardi was my favorite because He's the most progressive, he's had the most success, and he's able to handle the big market. Like that's, the fact that he's won in New York is very important to me because, as you know, the Philadelphia media and the Philadelphia fans are brutal, myself included, and that's just part of the job. Like Gabe Tapler was not able to, to navigate that nearly as effectively. Now, my only concern about Girardi is he's, he's super intense, right? He's, he's, 
he's at least that's what that was sort of his 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 rap when he was with the Yankees and ultimately he sort of rubbed guys the wrong way at least that was all the reporting so my fear is that him being so intense coupled with your franchise player and Bryce Harper being uh, quite similar. I'm not so sure how long that can last, but you know what? And listening to him call games this, this, this fall and, and, and all the rest of it, my expectation is that he's sort of, you know, learned from some of his mistakes and, and adjusted accordingly. At the outset, I favored Raul Labanez or Chase Utley, frankly, because I think that's sort of the model now for, for the next manager. We see all these guys retire, come back a few years later. That helps a lot because the game evolves so fast. But among the retreads, Joe Girardi is my top choice, so I'm I'm happy with that decision. I'm curious over here and all, and all my my buddies here in New York, who who in the world the Mets are going to hire? Because that seems to be like the the the, the best kept secret somehow, and nothing the Mets do has been a secret. A dumpster fire, the New York Mets. <laughs> that's pretty. That that that's uh that that's that's that is disrespectful to most dumpster fires. I, I have to say. <laughs> Hembo, you're the best. <laughs> Enjoy Game Seven. Same to you, bud. A terrific lineup for you here on A's Unfiltered. The Hall of Famer, Raleigh Fingers, Dan Feinstein of your Oakland Athletics, Bip Roberts, and our guy, Hembo. That'll do it for A's Unfiltered. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.